In this teaching presented by Corner Fringe Ministries, Daniel Joseph examines the question, Can we pray to Jesus? Enjoy. When pondering about what to talk about, I decided I would cover something that is somewhat peculiar, something that is dangerous, nay, I say deadly, actually. And I'm referring to a particular teaching concerning our Lord Yeshua. But before I tell you what that teaching is, I want to set the stage a little bit, and I want to begin with the following warning that Paul gives uh, to Timothy, obviously by extension he gives to us. And this is what he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. The first thing that you need to understand about this is Paul's not speaking from himself here. He's very clear. He says right at the beginning, the Spirit expressly says. This is coming straight from God. This is the Ruach HaKodesh imparting wisdom to him. And what did it tell him? It says that in the latter times, now there is no debate. We are in the end of the age right now. We are in the last days. I don't think any of you would even attempt to debate that. These are the times we're living in right now. And what does Paul tell us is going to happen in these days, in the church? I'm not talking about the world. In the church, what does he say is going to happen? He tells us people will depart from the faith. Believers are going to be stripped of the faith. How? Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Let me take you to Acts 20. Paul builds upon this idea. And he says, for, this I, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. It's interesting that those words that Yeshua spoke in Matthew 7 are the very same words. Yeshua warned that false prophets would come to you, to us, in the church. And you've you got to follow what Paul is actually saying in this first verse. He's saying people from here are going to come into the church. They are going to come to you. Yeshua says in Matthew 7, false prophets will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And what do we know about ravenous wolves? It's exactly what Paul says. They will not spare the flock. But I wish this was the end of it. This is not the end of it. It gets worse. Look at what he says in the very next verse. In verse 30, Also, from among yourselves, understand, within the body of Mashiach, within the body of Christ, something's going to happen. From within us, from within yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things. Now, if you look at this, this is quite interesting. If you go to the Greek for this word that's utilized, perverse, these perverse things, it is actually diastrepho. Do you know what diastrepho means? It means literally to misinterpret, to distort. So here you'll have men within the body of Christ, within the body of Mashiach, coming and rising up. And what do they do? They start speaking misinterpretations, distortions. What do you suppose they're misinterpreting and distorting? The Word of God, the truth. The Bible. He warned us these, these things were coming to the church. This is not a world scenario. This is an in-house issue. 
And what are they going to, why are they doing this? Well, Paul continues to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Night and day with tears. I want you to think about the gravity, the weight of this statement. For three years he labored. He did not cease to warn them of this very thing, of deception. And he did it with tears. Are you feeling the weight of the reality here? Because with all due respect, I'm not sure that the church fully appreciates this passage. I'm not sure they fully appreciate the level of deception that Paul, that Yeshua warned us would come from within, from within the body of the Mashiach. However, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, his second epistle, he actually helps us out to, to, to appreciate the level of deception involved. And I want to go to this, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, and what do they do? Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Deceitful workers transforming themselves. In other words, they're apostles, they're disciples of Yeshua, Jesus. This is what they are. They're not disciples. He's not talking about disciples of Joseph Smith, of Mohammed. He is talking about Christ. They're, these are the ones, okay? So they transform themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. They're not going out spreading. They're going out and spreading the love of Yeshua. They're saying, I love Jesus. They're saying, the Lord is my hope and my salvation. They're ministers of righteousness, but Paul says, whose end will be according to their works. You know, today it's almost like we have this, we're sedated. We have this notion, I'll never be deceived. I'm far too crafty. Satan will never pull one over on me. I can see a counterfeit coming a mile away. I know what Satan looks like. He has horns. He's got a pitchfork. He wears a red cape. Listens to Metallica. I know when I see him. It's obvious. Let me tell you something. When Satan comes after believers to infiltrate the church, he doesn't look anything like what you would expect him to look like. When Satan comes to deceive believers, he comes as an angel of light. His ministers come as ministers of righteousness, preaching Jesus, pre proclaiming the love, proclaiming the freedom and liberty that he's given us. That, now that is dangerous. That would be deception when he comes as an angel of light, when his ministers are ministers of of righteousness. Do not underestimate our adversary because I have seen his handiwork and I can tell you this, it's terrifying. It terrifies me and let me tell you why it terrifies me. It terrifies me because I see how successful he's actually been in his campaign of deception. It terrifies me to see believers in the church falling for his seductive teachings, being allured according to the dictates of their own heart, being allured through profane and idle babblings. 
being allured through fear, succumbing to the twisting of Scripture, which is why I want to talk about a particular deception that is attempting to infiltrate the church today. Now, I want to preface about what I'm about to share with you. As far as deceptions go, there are countless ones that I could address. I'm only addressing one, okay? And this particular one, in my opinion, is fairly low on the totem pole, all right? In other words, what I'm saying is, is this is not a teaching that is as, as seductive as many of the others. But nonetheless, it is seductive, it is taking people, and it needs to be addressed. What is the particular deception or teaching to which I am referring to? Well, let me frame it to you in a statement, and that is this. Believers should not offer their prayers to Yeshua, but only to the Father. How many of you have heard this teaching? Raise your hand. Fortunately, not a ton of you. But I can tell you, I have. And I've dealt with this face to face. I've confronted this heresy head on. And I can tell you that this is something that is gaining some ground. In fact, you, you consider the, 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 with the growth of the Messianic movement. And the reality is you got people leaving evangelical Christianity, mainstream Christianity, because they're starting to see some inconsistencies. They're starting to get into the Word and say, the guy that's up front is not speaking according to the Word of the Lord. There's inconsistencies. And so we do have a fairly large exodus out of mainstream Christianity. And I believe this is prophetic. I believe Christ is coming back for a pure and spotless bride. But let me tell you something. In the process of this, as they're abandoning some erroneous teachings, some people are coming in, finding their Hebrew roots, their, their messianic faith, and they're picking up new ones. You think Satan, in his craftiness, might be on to something here? Of knowing as they're leaving one and coming to the other, that he's going to set up stumbling blocks? Of course. This is what he's going to do. Don't underestimate the adversary. Just a couple months ago, I was listening to a particular, it's a Christian, it's a Christian Messianic radio broadcasting network, and um, it was a radio program, and it was an interview. And, and the guest on the show, he, he was actually telling uh, the host of the show uh, that, I should, actually, I should actually preface, he was enlightening the host of the show that prayers should not be offered to Yeshua. This is a misconception. This is a misstep by many believers. But that should be exclusively reserved for the Father alone. And he went on. It was interesting. He went on to say, well, if you call yourself a Christian, shouldn't you walk as Christ walked? Well, and the obvious answer to that is, of course. And then he led it to the next step of, well, did Christ pray? And if he prayed, who did he pray to? If we're followers of Messiah Yeshua... Shouldn't we do as he did? Because we read in Scripture that Yeshua prayed to the Father. And he went on to say, if we are truly Yeshua's, then we will not offer prayers up to Yeshua, but we will offer prayers exclusively to the Father. Prayers to Yeshua is forbidden. And then he took the host of the radio program to a passage that I am well acquainted with, and it's found in Matthew 6, and I want to share it with you because this is the evidence that was submitted. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, 
And when you pray, this is Yeshua. He is teaching his disciples how to pray. Okay? And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the, this is the introduction to what everyone knows here probably as the Lord's Prayer. He goes on to say in verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, this prayer was utilized as evidence to advocate that prayers cannot be directed to Yeshua. Yeshua himself said you could only pray to the Father. We're going to deal with this teaching today because you need to defend the faith. You are called to defend the faith. I am called to defend the faith, and I'm going to defend it today. Now, when addressing the question of whether or not we should offer up prayers to Yeshua, you know, there are several factors that need to be taken in consideration. The first factor is the subject at hand. In other words, the subject matter that's really being called into question is prayer. And what, where that is supposed to go to. So if we're going to question whether or not Yeshua can receive prayer, we have to first identify at, at a very elementary level, well, what is prayer? What is prayer? So I want to begin today by taking you to a couple passages in Scripture to give you some perspective on what prayer is and the power that it has. I want to take you to the book of 1 Kings. And in, in chapter 8, we actually, this is the point, Solomon, he's, Completed the building of the temple according to the Lord's command. And what he does is he, it's pretty awesome, throughout 8, he offers this what is known as the prayer of dedication. And in this prayer, he reveals to us some powerful information, powerful reality regarding prayer. So I want to look at this. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 26, Solomon says, And now I pray... O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Dropping down to verse 37. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blights or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, and when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, catch this, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone, or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, verse 39, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, listen to this, here in heaven, that word is Shema, Shema, uh, uh, Be Shemaim, then here in heaven, and forgive and act. Did you catch that? Forgive and act. And give to everyone according to all his ways who heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. 
So the first thing I want you to know about prayer is, obviously, prayer is basic elementary here. It's a direct conduit to speak to God. And this is obviously the primary objective. But it's not just, don't think of it, don't simplify it too far to just be a form of communication or conversation that we can have with the Lord. Because it's more than that. We are told that through prayer, our sins are forgiven. Now, right now you might say, hold up, Daniel. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Our sins are forgiven through the sacrifice of what Yeshua did for us. No debate. I agree 100%. But you have to understand prayer is involved in salvation. Prayer is involved for the forgiveness of sins. Proof of it is found right here in 1 Kings chapter 8. When Solomon calls upon the Lord, when the people pray to you, Lord God, hear their prayer and forgive their sins. Forgive them. John Yochanan, in his short epistle, articulates what I'm trying to convey. He does it much better than I do. So let's go there. In verse 7, we read chapter 1. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Yeshua HaMashiach, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, see, there's no confession of sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If, if, verse 9, if we confess our sins. How do we confess our sins? It's prayer. That's what you do. You go before God and say, God, I am sorry. A, B, C, X, Y, Z. I've done this. How do you think you confess your sins? It's through, to feel it's through prayer. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to put prayer into perspective here for you. Are you picking up on some of the power, the impact, the reality of what prayer really is? When we give thanksgiving, how do we do it? It's through prayer, right? So when we step back and we look at what prayer really is, honestly, boil it all down, okay? Boil it all down to the purest form. What is prayer? Prayer is this. Prayer is an act of worship. That's what it is. Prayer is an act of worship. Now let me tell you something. Now we're getting somewhere in regard to understanding whether or not prayer could be offered up to Yeshua. Because the real question is, can we worship Yeshua? Because if we can worship Him, then obviously it would be appropriate to offer Him prayers. However, if Scripture shows that worship of Yeshua is forbidden, then we can safely say that prayers would also be forbidden. It's the obvious conclusion. So let's take a look at some scriptural testimony which reveals who Yeshua really is. If we go to the first book uh, in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, we read the following, chapter 8, verse 1. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him. In the Greek, it's proskaneo. Here you have a leper, obvious he has a problem. He's plagued with leprosy. This leper comes to Yeshua, and it is emphatically clear that he worshipped him, offered him proskaneo. Now, let me give you a little backdrop to proskaneo. 
If we go to Revelation, and I didn't put these up here, if you go to Revelation chapter 19, we find John, and also in 22 as well, both those chapters. We find Yohanan, right, the, the, the one responsible for the book of Revelation. He sees the angel, and what happens? He falls. He falls before the angel, and the text says to worship. To worship, offer him proskuneo. The angel refused the worship. He refused to receive proskuneo. Go to Acts chapter 10. You have Cornelius, the, 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 uh, the bringing together of Cornelius and Peter. Right? Cornelius had that, that uh, uh, the angel come visit him. Peter had the vision. And so they're brought together. When Cornelius sees Peter, he falls down. And the text explicitly says... He worshipped Peter. And what did Peter do? He said, stand up. He refused proskuneo. He refused the worship. I am a man as you are. Okay, so we have multiple sources of evidence where men were offering proskuneo to other men or to angels, and it is refused. So what I'm looking for here is, how does Yeshua to respond to this proskuneo, to this worship from this leper? Does he refuse it? Well, let's continue. And behold, a leper came and worshipped and saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Yeshua put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. No correction, no rebuke. He fully accepted the proskuneo, the worship. Let me take it a step further. Because looking at this particular scenario, here you have a leper worshiping, offering this proskuneo, but he's not asking Yeshua to do something a man can do. He's asking him something that only God can do. Heal. Totally cleanse him. Speak the word. Think about that. Going to Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. And while he spoke these things to them, Behold a ruler, we know this ruler to be Jairus. He was a ruler of synagogue. Jairus came to him and worshipped him. Again, that's proskuneo. He worshipped him saying, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. This is fascinating to me because here I'm seeing men in scripture coming to worship him and they're not just asking him, hey, can you come over for dinner? He's asking, Jairus asked him to raise the dead. Something only God can do. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can give life. Let me give you one more example. If we go back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 2, this is the time, it's the recordation of Yeshua's birth in Bethlehem. And we read the following. Remember, we've got the wise men. They're traveling from the east. They're coming. They're seeking. The Melech Hayudim, the king of the Jews. And this is what we read. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. They fell down. Something that you need to understand that you're going to see in regard to worship, there is an act of falling down. We see this all over the place in Scripture. Falling down. Kneeling down. It's so interesting when you consider what prayer really is, that it is worship, what is recorded all throughout Scripture, men doing, kneeling down to pray over and over. I could show you passage after passage, 
men kneeling down, they knelt and prayed. Because it's an act of worship. So here you have them, these wise men, falling down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, just looking at the other scenarios, they're not just coming and worshipping, asking them to eat with them. They're asking them to do only things God can do. Here you see men coming to a baby, the word made flesh, falling down to worship him. And it's so interesting, what do they do next? They offer this child gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is not a coincidence. These are deliberate items to indicate the character, the nature of the child. Gold representing kingship. Frankincense representing the priesthood. See, because the coming Mashiach was to be both a king and a priest. That's what he was supposed to be. And then the myrrh, this is what they did to embalm. This is what they, the myrrh would have been, he was anointed. You'll find, it's, it's fascinating. You look at this, this is not the sermon. But when you look at these three items, all three of these items are also found in the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the temple. You would have found frankincense because on the altar of incense in the holy place, it would have been burning. You would have found everything overlaid with gold and everything would have been covered in myrrh. Why? Because myrrh was one of the main ingredients in the anointing oil. Pretty awesome. Bottom line is, it cannot be refuted from scriptural testimony. I'm only giving you a fragment. I could go on showing you more examples of Yeshua being worshipped. But understand, Yeshua received worship over and over again. People falling down before him. So getting back to this ideology that believers shouldn't offer up prayers to Yeshua. With all due respect, it's absurd. If Yeshua can be worshipped and is, there is absolutely no question that he can be petitioned, he can be prayed to. Because prayer is, in fact, worship. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. This is emphatically clear that Yeshua was glorified in beauty and splendor, and he laid it aside to be manifest so that the word could be made flesh. He came as a bondservant. Now, he goes on to say in verse 8, And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Verse 10, That at the name of Yeshua, listen to this, At the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Yeshua HaMashiach is Lord. Now understand something. We are missing a little bit of the drama here, the dramatic features in the English. Because this statement to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you go to the Greek, the word used for Lord is kurios. It's kurios. Do you know that in the first century, at this time, there is something known as the Greek Septuagint. We still have them today. But many of the Jews were Greek-speaking Jews. So the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, were actually translated into Greek. 
That translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, was called the Septuagint. Here's what's fascinating. Every time they went to translate the sacred tetragrammaton, the sacred name of God, yod heh vav heh every time it would be translated as kurios. So put this into perspective, what Paul is really saying. Yeshua HaMashiach is God. This is what he's saying. And what is it? To the glory of God the Father. This is the Father's, this is who he is. He has manifested himself through his Son. If you have seen me, this is Yeshua speaking. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Right? What a powerful, what a powerful statement that Paul makes here. Let me take it a step further. Paul, these aren't his own words that he had crafted together. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah. He's quoting literally scripture. Let me show you that scripture. Isaiah 45, 18. For thus says the Lord, that is the sacred name, that is the tetragrammaton, the yod heh vav who created the heavens, who is Elohim, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh, there is no other. Now we go to verse 22. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Literally, Paul in Philippians chapter 2 quotes this passage verbatim. In Isaiah, it's Yahweh, or Yehovah if you prefer. It's the Tetragrammaton. We go to Philippians, Paul reveals who Yahweh is. He reveals the Son, and he utilizes the name Yeshua. And that to Yeshua, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess. You know, you think about John chapter 20. Yeshua had resurrected from the dead. And Thomas, who is known as Doubting Thomas, he didn't believe. He didn't believe that Yeshua was resurrected. And he said, I won't believe unless I see it with my own eyes. And his first glance, when he seen Yeshua, he said, Ho kurios mu, kai ho theos mu. My Lord and my God. Think about that statement for a second. Think about the man Yeshua. Think about who he really is. My Lord and my God. That is what came out of Thomas's mouth. So in asking the question of whether or not it is right or even permissible to offer prayers up to Yeshua, we need to step back and look at, well, who is Yeshua? Who is the man Yeshua? Because anyone who is not willing to offer up prayers to him or teaches that you shouldn't offer prayers to him, again, with all due respect, that person, it tells me, you have no idea who Yeshua is. Your statement, your belief on what you believe, you don't know him. You have no idea who he is, and furthermore, you have no idea what Scripture testifies of him. It's through the name of Yeshua that we're given life. It's through the name of Yeshua that we are redeemed. It's because of the name of Yeshua our sins are forgiven. 
Through Him, by the will of the Father, we are saved. Acts 4.10, listen to Peter. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yeshua Mashiach of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by Him. Listen to that. By Him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Think about that statement. Because I can take you to the Tanakh and show you passage after passage. It is the yod heh vav who gives salvation. And yet, that revelation of who He is is experienced through Yeshua. It's experienced through Him. Let me take this a step further. Because I could have summed up today's entire message simply by taking you just to a couple different passages in the New Testament, which it would have immediately ended the discussion on whether or not we can offer prayer to Yeshua. But of course, that would have made for a very short sermon. So I didn't do that. But let me present the evidence showing, I mean, point blank, disciples praying to Yeshua. That's the end of the discussion. We actually have evidence. That's why... This doctrine that's going out, this is one of the ones that frustrates me because it's so overtly ridiculous. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. This is Paul. He says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, in other words, to beat him down, lest I be exalted above measure. In verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord. Who do you suppose he's pleading with? You're going to see, it's absolutely no emphatic, it's absolute Yeshua. He's pleading with the Lord three times that I might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Mashiach, Christos, this is a term reserved exclusively for the Son, just so you know who we're talking about, that He may rest upon me. Paul prayed to Yeshua. He had an infirmity, he was upset, he wanted it taken care of. Who's he going to? His Savior. He's going to Yeshua. Let me take you to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. This is extremely powerful. This is uh, in regard to the disciple Stephen. Remember, he's stoned. Now, here's the event. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Yeshua standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. Verse 58. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God. Listen to this. Stephen is calling on God. And what is this prayer? Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. He is calling on God, Elohim. He is praying to who? Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. Let me take it a step further. Do you know in Luke 23... Now, this is mirroring this. Think about this. Yeshua is teaching his disciples how to pray to the Father. 
Our Father who art in heaven. Amazing. This has an unbelievable parallel to what I'm trying to get across to you today. Because here we see Stephen, he's crying out, Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit, because he's dying. He knows he's going to die. Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. When Yeshua is on the cross, in Luke 23, he prays the exact same thing, except Yeshua offered it to the Father. When Yeshua is on the cross, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Here we see Stephen praying the exact same prayer that Yeshua prayed to his Father, except it's directed directly to Yeshua. That is amazing. Do not buy into the perverse doctrine of demons that you cannot pray to Yeshua because you can and you should. There's power when you call upon the name of Yeshua. There's power. As a side note, I put this in here because I thought you'd find it extremely interesting. This teaching that you cannot pray to the Son, but only to the Father, you need to understand, this is a teaching that's been around for a long, long time. Centuries upon centuries. Is anyone familiar with a gentleman by the name of Dr. John D? Well, I'll just give you a brief summary. Dr. D was considered one of the brightest minds of his era, an intellectual on literally every level. Very few men could could compare to this individual. He was something to behold. You think of certain men that existed in, in particular eras that were men of renown, like Benjamin Franklin. Well, this is the clout that Dr. G held, okay? He was a mathematician, he was an astronomer, he was an astrologer, a philosopher. He was also an advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. And not just that, but Dr. G, Dr. D was an occultist. He was in the occult. He joined the two fields of science and magic together. He sought esoteric knowledge through science and magic. And so what he basically did is he pursued the summoning of angels. This is what he did. He pursued, he summoned angels to receive esoteric knowledge. And obviously he knew that the demons knew, or the demon. well, yes, the angels that he was pursuing, they knew something. And... Dr. D was well acquainted with the book of Enoch. And this whole aspect of him reaching out to angels to receive esoteric knowledge, I want to show you some passages in the book of Enoch so that you understand really where this is all coming from. And if you're not familiar with the book of Enoch, you're visiting with us today, just give you a brief summary. The book of Enoch was actually a book that was read amongst the first century Jews, the first century believers. We know believers in Christ read the book of Enoch. It's recorded in the book of Jude. It's found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This was a book that was heavily read, and it is now just recently making a comeback. But let me show you the passage that I want to show you that relates to Dr. John Dee. And Azazel taught men. These are angels who had come down, fallen angels. They had come down. Now listen to what they do. And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the artworking of them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of uh, antimony and the beautifying of eyelids and all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures. Going to verse 2. 
And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. These are angels. Sam Jaza taught enchantments and root cuttings. Armaros, uh, the resolving of enchantments, Barakiel taught astrology, Cocabel, the constellations, Ezekiel, uh, the knowledge of the clouds. Ezekiel was apparently a meteorologist. Erechiel, that was a joke. Erechiel, the signs of the earth. Shemaseel, the signs of the sun. And Sarael, the course of the moon. Okay? See, I, I, I show you this passage in, in Enoch because Dee understood the angels had ability to reveal secret knowledge. Thus, he saw them as being the, the destination to receive esoteric wisdom, esoteric knowledge, which is why he pursued magic, which is why he pursued to communicate with these angels. He wanted this information. He wanted to have information that man did not have, that was concealed from man. Now, interestingly enough, these form of practicing magic, even known today, it is literally called Enochian magic. That's what it's called. It's a Kabbalistic angelic magic system. It relies heavily upon uh, numerological uh, situations, such like what, what we see in Gematria. And so uh, this, was a, this was a magic system that even came complete with its own language. Dee believed he received a supernatural angelic message from these angels, this Enochian language. Um, now, this, this system, which is ascribed to John Dee, this Enochian magic system, I want you to understand something. He had another founder, and the founder's name was Edward Kelly. And Edward Kelly, he actually served as the medium, okay, between John Dee and the angels. Edward Kelly would actually perform the seance. Edward Kelly was actually the one receiving this information from the angels to give to Dee. But here's the kicker. These consultations, these seances were from Dee's perspective. This is Dr. John Dee. He believed he was doing this in a Christian manner. Had a Christian air about it. He would always fast and pray. He fasted and prayed. Obviously, in the Bible, he would fast and pray, and then he would go forward with Edward Kelly, and they would conduct uh, these seances. You need to understand, if you study history, if you study this man, Dr. John Dee, he was considered a pious Christian. He was considered a very pious Christian, so pious that the queen enlisted him to be the warden of Christ College at the time, early uh, 1590s. He was actually the warden of Christ College. And yet we see this man is involved in the occult. Now, why do I bring all this up? What is my point of even talking about this? How does any of this have to do whether or not we should offer up prayers to Yeshua? Well, let me explain to you what it has to do with. Dr. John D. kept a diary which still exists today. And on June 8th, 1584, D. recorded that as he and Edward Kelly were conducting one of their seances, he was extremely troubled by what the angels had conveyed to them. Because these angelic beings had conveyed some knowledge to them that they wanted to impart to them. And do you know what that knowledge is? I want to share this with you. First thing is that they told him is that Jesus was not God. 
As they're doing the seance, this is what the angels reported first. They went on to say this, that no prayer ought to be made to Yeshua. This is coming from this seance. No prayer. These angels are commanding them, saying, no prayers to be offered up to Yeshua. That wasn't it. They went on to say, there is no such thing as sin. Amazing. That wasn't it. And then they went on to say that man's soul, the reality about man's soul, is it basically goes from one to another. What do we call this today? We call this reincarnation. This was the message that was conveyed. When I say doctrines of demons, this is not hyperbole. Demons have been peddling this message for centuries. I mean, look over history and you will find time and time again people coming in and attacking the deity of Yeshua. It's demonic. Attacking the fact that we should be praying to him. It's demonic. It's absolutely demonic. What I want to do, you know, I want to go back to the Lord's Prayer, but before I do, one thing you need to realize about the attacks, the deception of the evil one. When I step back and I look into history and I see all these things that he's doing, things that are contrary to Scripture, one thing I realize is that the basis, common denominator of it all, he's attacking your relationship your intimacy with Yeshua. Every time. Every time our relationship is what's being attacked. Our relationship with him is what's being destroyed. Sought to be destroyed. Uh, it is absolutely amazing. Now let me take you back to the Lord's Prayer because I want to point out some things in this prayer that you need to see. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Yeshua goes on. He teaches the Lord's Prayer. Therefore pray, our Father... In heaven, hallowed be your name. Sanctified, holy is his name. No debate. But what do we know about the name of Yeshua? Is it hallowed? We have to ask the question. Well, let's just, what did we cover today? There's salvation, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. Call that hallowed. I call that sanctified. What did Paul tell us in Philippians 2? Every knee is going to bow to the name of Yeshua. Call that hallowed. Call that sanctified. Even James tells his brethren in his short epistle that they shouldn't blaspheme the noble name by which they've been called. The name he is referring to is Yeshua. Blasphemy is something you commit against God. Start thinking about these things. What about Acts chapter 3, verse 16? And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. This is Peter talking about how this lame man became healed. Whom you see and know, yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. This is why we find when we start looking in Scripture more and more, you find statements like Yeshua said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. It's automatic, right? If you reject me, you reject the Father. These are things that are automatic. And this is why in John 12, Yeshua says, I and my Father are echad. We are one. Let's continue in this Lord's Prayer. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom. This is Yeshua speaking to the Father. Your kingdom. This is interesting. Keep in mind, this is the very same kingdom which Yeshua states is his. First person possessive. This is my kingdom. Let me show you. Yeshua answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants, so not only the kingdom, but the angels in it, they are his servants. My servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Let me tell you something. There's nobody in this room that should even dare step up and make the statements that Yeshua made. There is not Moses, not Elijah, not Elisha, not David would make the statements that Yeshua made. Going out and taking claim. This is that the kingdom of heaven is their kingdom. Nobody in their right mind would make that statement. Nobody would go out and say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. These are statements that are exclusively reserved for the Son alone. Because He is one with His Father. Continuing in the prayer, let's go a little bit further. Matthew 6.11 Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. So Yeshua to the Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So here we're told that the Father, He's the one who forgives our sins. Again, no debate. There's no debate there. We find this throughout the Tanakh, that God is the one who forgives sins. Read Psalm 103. He is the one, it is the yod heh vav the Tetragrammaton. He is the one who forgives sins. But interestingly enough, what do we know about Yeshua? Oh yeah, He forgives sins. Look at this, Luke 5.19. And when they could not find how they might bring Him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop. And this is actually referring to, you had a paralytic man here. It's also recorded in Matthew 8. Four men came and helped their paralytic friend. He couldn't walk. The house was so full, they couldn't get in, so they had to go in by the roof. So that's what we're reading here. So when they could not find how that they might bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Yeshua. And in verse 20, when he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Agreed. Who can forgive sins but God alone? There is no debate in Scripture to to the fact that only God can forgive sins. And yet we see Yeshua over and over again forgiving sins because He is one with His Father. All right? Now, the prayer is ended with the following statement. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The kingdom and the power and the glory. This is interesting. The power and glory is the Father's. There's no question. Going to Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Tetragrammaton. There it is. I am the Lord That is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. God will not share His glory. If there's anything you understand in Scripture, you need to get that right. Because men perished because they received His glory. He will not share His glory. 
And yet, what do we find with Yeshua? That he has that glory. John chapter 17, verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. This is his intercessory to prayer before he's sacrificed. O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Think about that same. Is there anyone here that would step up and say, Oh God, give me your glory? Nobody. Nobody in their right mind would make this statement. Or if you don't want to live, by all means. Because God will not share his glory. That's it. But yet we see Yeshua has the glory of the Father. That is amazing. The more you look at Scripture, the more you realize how imperative prayer to Yeshua really is. The Father, the Father of all living things, has ordained his Son to receive glory. It's how he wants it. It's his will that he might be glorified. So if you hear someone falling into the trap that you need to bypass Yeshua to get to the Father or forbidding you to pray to Yeshua, you need to rush to the rescue. This is time for you to start defending the faith because they are being seduced by demons. It's a doctrine of demons. I want to close with this verse, very powerful verse showing just who Yeshua is. In John 5.22, Yeshua says, The Father judges no one. Let me just stop right there. You read the Tanakh, and I will tell you, read the Psalms. It is yod heh vav who judges, who is going to be the final judge. And yet, what does Yeshua say here? The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That's amazing. That all should honor, honor, give glory to, honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Again, is there anyone in this room that would, that would start walking around and say, you need to honor me as you honor the Father? Are you insane? Think about that statement. To honor Him as the Father. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That is powerful. In other words, if you think you're going to bypass praying to Yeshua, not giving Him the honor that has been ordained, you do not honor the Father. Dead in the water. So we're going to close here for today. The music team can come up.